0: Regularly, I'm amazed by a couple of things in sermon prep and in preaching sermons. The first of which, and it, sh- it should stop surprising me how often it happens, but I guess I'm a slow learner. The way God weaves things together just amazes me. the uh, The way that we see these sovereign coincidences, if you will. And maybe it's how the Sunday school lesson and how a song that we sing and the Bible reading that we've had during the week just meshes perfectly with the sermon. Or maybe it's um, some other parts of the liturgy that just come together and you think, oh man, that's just perfect how all that fits together. And I promise you again and again, that is rarely ever planned but I noticed it happening again this week, specifically in my study in preparation for this sermon. I saw how uh, this passage plus a chapter in, in the book that the elders are reading together, and then something that I heard randomly on a podcast that I listened to this week and mind you it was not a new podcast this was a podcast that had been in my queue for like months and I just never got around to it until this week I just happened to get around to it and these three just fit together so well and I'm always amazed by that the second thing I'm amazed by is how terribly terribly difficult at times it is to organize and outline all that's going on in a passage Not because things are difficult to understand, that the concepts are actually pretty simple, but how interconnected and related they are to each other makes it really difficult to know where to begin and how to present this to you. And and I think that that really speaks to the infinite nature of our God in many ways. He's able to accomplish a million things at once, uh, and I can't do three things at the same time. Rarely can I do two. Um... And so this chapter, chapter 13 here in Genesis, was incredibly difficult to organize all that's going on here. And what I kind of ended up boiling it all down to, there's one big question that's asked, at least initially, uh, in this passage. And that's, how does one respond to failure? What to do after you fall flat on your face? And then there are two pretty big themes that emerge from this passage as well. And that's the faith of Abraham on the one hand and the sovereignty of God on the other. So that's the one question and the two themes that I'm going to try to untangle as best as I can so that we will derive some benefit from this. So stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Genesis 13, it's 18 verses. These are the very words of God. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And he built an altar to the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. We've already prayed for the help that we need, so please be seated. So what happens after you blow it? How do you recover after you've fallen flat on your face? That's how the book that I mentioned earlier got tied into this. We're reading this book called Lead by Paul David Tripp, and it's, it's incredible. Uh, it, it is l- church leadership principles bathed and soaked in the gospel, And this week, or for this month rather, we read a chapter on restoration. What to do when someone, specifically a a leader in the church, has some type of sinful failing. What do you do to restore them? What do you do do to recover from that? Uh, We saw last week how Abram, he had his faith tested. There was famine in the land. We saw Abraham fail that test miserably. I don't know if that's how you would characterize it, but to me, if deportation is involved, if God has to call down plagues out of heaven to get you out of a mess that you've created for yourself, that's a pretty big-time failure. And so we see in this week's passage what Abram does next. How do you recover from that? And this isn't just an academic pursuit. This isn't only about him. Not just how did Abram recover. I mentioned to you last week, all of our faith will be tested again and again. And we will fail some of those tests so we could stand to learn from Abram how to recover from such failure. So what do we see Abram do? Well, after getting kicked out of Egypt, He goes back to where he came from. Verse 3, back to the place between Ai and Bethel, where he had been at the beginning. And it just so happens this is one of the places, one of many places, where he had built an altar. And so once again, verse 4, he returns and he worships. He calls upon the name of the Lord. I think that is a really great first step in recovering from failure. Worship, calling upon the name of the Lord. If you will remember in weeks prior where we saw some of the earlier folks in Genesis calling upon the name of the Lord, we talked about that to do so represents the totality of who God is and what he has done. So step one for Abram, recovering from failure, is to worship. Now, I want us to consider two things about his worship. The content of his worship and the results of his worship. What do you think Abram's worship might have consisted of? As he's considering who God is and what God has done, I wonder what came to Abram's mind. How about for starters, oh, how you graciously came to my rescue and you got me safely out of Egypt. What was to prevent Pharaoh from executing Abram on the spot for his treachery? Absolutely nothing, save God. What else might have fueled Abram's worship? How about this ridiculous wealth he returned with? I mentioned to you last week, that's how crazy grace is? blessings that you do not deserve, filthy, stinking rich in the midst of deep sinfulness. These promises that God had made to Abram, these had to still be relatively fresh in his mind. I'm sure that that was some of the content of his worship as well. God had promised so much more good still to come, a great name, a great nation, blessing the world through you, Abram. And then certainly woven throughout all of these things, another big thing that Abram would have had to praise God for would be God's sovereignty, his sovereign control through all of this. And that's one of the big themes that we're going to look at in just a moment. So that would be the content of his worship. What about the results of worship for Abram? Now, granted, and, and this is important, We don't engage in worship because of the results. We don't come to worship because of the benefits that we receive. We need to worship God because he's great and greatly to be praised. Worship is due him because he is worthy of our worship. But with that being said... God is also unbelievably gracious. He gives and he gives and he gives. So even when we worship, he's giving. We're receiving. We're the blessed recipients. Even as we're trying to give to him worship, one of the things he's giving is an increase of our faith. When we worship, he is strengthening buttressing, energizing our faith. Now this should be a no-brainer, right? Given the content of our worship, right? If in our worship we're focusing on who God is and what he's done, how can that not increase our faith and trust in him? Well we praise him because he's holy and he's mighty and his steadfast love endures forever and he's gracious and he's merciful. And we praise him for how he's rescued us from our slavery to sin and death. We praise him for the provision of a spotless lamb of God to atone for our sins. And we, re- we rehearse these truths again and again in our worship. And bit by bit, slowly but surely, our faith is renewed. And it grows stronger and stronger. How perfect then is this first step of worship in Seeking to recover from failure. Abram's failure that we saw last week was a failure of faith. So how fitting, how appropriate that this first step in in recovery is a step that will strengthen his weak faith. And stronger faith is a huge difference maker. See, Abram's held up in Scripture as a model, as an example, again and again and again. Look at Abram, Abraham by that point. Look at his great faith. Look how obedient he very often was because of his great faith. Was he perfectly obedient? Obviously not. We've seen that already. We'll see it again. But increased faith necessarily results in increased obedience. It's true for Abram. It'll be true for us. We see two very practical, tangible ways in this passage of how it was true for Abram, where Abram's faith helped him obey, where Abram's faith had a a real impact on how he lived. We see it, number one, in his peacemaking. We see it, number two, in his generosity. So it turns out Abram wasn't the only wealthy one. Right, His nephew, Lot, had also been blessed by God, primarily because he was with Abram. So much wealth these two had together that the land couldn't support them. There wasn't enough pasture land, not enough room to graze, which, you know, here's another little test of Abram's faith. This stinking land you've brought us to, is it just going to be inadequate at every turn? First it was famine, now it's overcrowded, and so the temptation here for Abram is going to be, say, forget this, I'll go find somewhere better but he doesn't by faith abram says we can solve this little problem of ours he he engages in a in a peacemaking process and he does so through an extreme display of generosity he's a peacemaker who's extremely generous so as we're reading through the Old Testament and we're trying to see how every story whispers Jesus' name and how everything is really about him, and we come across a, a, a peacemaker who's extremely generous. Hmm, imagine that. Um, it, it should not come as a surprise to us that Abram is trying to take good care of his nephew Lot. He probably feels like Lot is more like his son than his nephew in the first place. Abram had taken Lot into his family when his brother Haran, that's Lot's father, died what appears to be an unusually early death. And and so Abram essentially adopts Lot into his family, treats him as a son. So we would expect Abram to take care of Lot. We would not expect for him to be quite so generous as he is. And that Generosity is a direct result of Abram's faith. By faith, Abram says to his nephew Lot, take your pick. From the whole land that I've been promised, go where you want. I'll go elsewhere. I'll share this land that has been promised. Y'all, that, that's radically generous. Uh, th- th- that promise of the land wasn't made to Lot. It was rightfully Abrams to claim and insist on for his descendants. He could have simply assigned Lot a portion and said, "Eh, You go over there, that can be yours. And and he wouldn't have done Lot any disservice at all in that. No one would have thought twice about that. But Abram is abundantly generous because of his faith, because he's trusting in the Lord to provide whatever he needs. He's ultimately trusting, as you read through the pages of Scripture, we see. He's ultimately trusting Abram is not in the land that they're standing on, not in Canaan that they can see and kick the dust of. No, he's trusting on a Canaan that will last forever author to the Hebrews tells us that, Hebrews 11. Abram was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. See, Abram's got eternity in his heart. That's where his trust is. And this is significant, y'all. If we have grasped eternity, we can let go of anything else. If eternity is what we're clinging to, we won't feel the need to cling so tightly to any of this world's stuff. Now, one thing to recognize and to remember, and it doesn't come from this passage per se, but it's clearly in Scripture, and so we can claim it as we seek to understand this passage. Faith itself is a gift of God's grace. It's not something we possess on our own or can muster up. It has to be given. It has to be granted. And it is not given equally to all, it's not even given to all. We see that in the life of Lot. The faith that Abram has been given, the faith that has been strengthened through Abram's worship, keeps Abram from making the faithless mistake that we see Lot make here. If faith is believing what you cannot see, that comes straight out of Hebrews as well, if faith is believing what you cannot see, then the absence of faith leaves you believing only in what you can see. So Lot gets this amazingly generous offer from Uncle Abram. An offer that should have been refused. Or at least a small protest should have been made on Lot's part. Oh, no, uncle, I could, I could that's not right. It's not right for you to offer that. I could. But Lot doesn't even pretend. He hears the offer, he says, really? <laughs> yes. And he gets these big googly eyes and he looks at the land Verse 10, he lifted up his eyes and he sees exactly what he wants. Abram has generously offered to share Canaan, to share the promised land with him. But what Lot sees is, well, it's on the very edge and it goes on beyond. And I think, and the commentators seem to agree, this is a conscious choice on Lot's part. He, he knows Canaan is what has been promised. He, and he knows where Canaan is. He's traveled through it from north to south with Abram. But he's willfully choosing something beyond the scope of what's been promised. Because, frankly, it looks better. The grass over there, it's, it's greener, isn't it? Beyond the Jordan. It's so well watered over there. Something big in his mind after this famine, no doubt. So lush, in fact, this land is that it reminds him of Eden, or at least what he's heard about Eden, the Garden of the Lord. And it reminds him of Egypt, where they've just came from, where they fled during the famine because the land was lush and they had food available. It's not a stupid choice that Lot makes. It makes sense, but only to the senses, only as far as he could see. And again, that's the only choice that someone without faith is able to make. Now, this is frequently one of our enemy's tactics. Very frequently, Satan wants us to turn our backs on what God has promised because we think we found something better. We think we've found something, maybe, that even God has been holding out on us. Without faith, you're going to walk and you're going to choose by sight. But very often, and especially for lot here, it only looks good on the surface. And we know that looks can be deceiving, can't they? Sometimes things look so good on the surface that we fail to take other important things into account. Other warnings, yellow flags that come up, things like verse 13. It looks really nice over there, but what about the really, really terribly wicked residents? Should that be a concern? I mentioned that uh, podcast that I happened to listen to finally this week. It was, a, it was a pastor from Australia being interviewed, and I don't remember his name. But he was talking about how secular things have become. And he's an Australian, so they're like 10 years more secular than we are here. They're much more in line with, with Europe. But he had a definition for secularism that really got my attention. He said, Secularism is a desire for the kingdom. Without the king. I said, Oh, that's really good. Right? That, that that's good. A desire for the kingdom without the king. That that's what so many of my friends are desiring. That's what people in my family are desiring. The kingdom without it, give me the good life. Right? Give me all the pleasure that this world has to offer. I want it all and and supersize it, why don't you? But what I do not want is someone telling me what to do or how to do it. I want the kingdom, but I don't want the king. Lot saw that land. He saw how lush it was, how well watered it was. He thought it was paradise. He thought it was the Garden of Eden itself. He longed for paradise, but not for the God of that paradise. Y'all, this desire is rampant in our culture today, right? Give me heaven, people say. Oh, yes, I definitely want to go to heaven when I die, right? But this choosing of heaven is simply choosing an alternative to hell. I want to go to heaven because it sounds a lot better than hell. I want to go to heaven because it sounds better than nothingness, if that's the opposite belief. But I do not choose heaven instead of earth. No, this earth, (laughs) this earth has everything I want. I'll just choose heaven if I'm forced to make a choice. I'd much rather have what is here. I certainly would not choose heaven for the Lord God who is there and who has made it his dwelling place. See, they don't want the Lord of heaven at all who will be worshipped and adored for eternity. And when you begin to describe heaven in that light, that that's what we'll oh you're going to do that forever and ever won't won't you get bored and for anyone who thought they could choose heaven by sight and not by faith yeah it would be pretty terrible to spend eternity with a god that you don't love and adore with every fiber of your being. It takes the eyes of faith to see the Lord and not just His gifts, but to see the Lord as lovely and worthy of adoration. You now, faith is such a huge difference maker. So that's the one big theme, faith, specifically as seen in Abram's life. The other big theme that we'll finish with is the sovereignty of God. And this one, too, y'all, it is so woven throughout this passage. From the sovereign care and protection that Abram received, getting him safely back to Canaan. One of the helpful ways, I think, to understand the sovereignty of God would be to borrow some language from from our catechism, our Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's question seven. Um, And it's describing the decrees of God. So it's describing sovereignty as this, that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. That's useful language. That's very helpful language to think about the sovereignty of God. God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So nothing happens that is outside of his control. We see that in this passage. Take, for example, the strife between Abram and Lot. What was the cause of their strife? Well, too much cattle, too much livestock, and not not enough land. Well, how did they end up with so much cattle? Oh, because the Lord blessed them with so much cattle. The Lord foreordained their blessedness, and therefore he also foreordained their strife. Well, why would he do that? Well, maybe it's because he also foreordained the strengthening of Abram's faith that would result in amazing generosity. Well, keep tracing this thread. The amazing generous offer of Abram results in Lot separating from Abram. God foreordained that separation. God foreordained the foolish choice that Lot would make, based only on sight, that would take him out of the promised land. Now, does that mean God forced him to choose foolishly? No. All the foolishness Lot needed to make that foolish choice was already deep within within his heart. <laughs> All God had to do was let it loose, take his gracious restraints off for a minute, Foolish choices abound. See, Abram had been so generous. Here, I'll share with you. But God's sovereign action shows he never intended for Abram's promise to be shared with Lot and his descendants, but only with Abram and his. That was the Lord's plan. Think about who Lot's descendants are, do you know? Who was it that would spring up and develop On the other side of the Jordan, the Moabites, the Ammonites, those are Lot's descendants. God is sovereign over all of this. He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And we see the sovereign Lord appear to Abram once again at the end of this passage. After Lot makes his choice, separates from Abram, the Lord appears to Abram to reaffirm the promises he's already made, to reiterate, to even expand upon what had been promised. God says to, to Abram, lift up your eyes and see. Which, y'all, that's interesting. That's the exact same thing that Lot did back in verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw, but he did not have the eyes of faith. And it made all the difference to the world. The two men did the very same physical thing. They lifted up their eyes and they saw all that was before them. But one did it with only fleshly sight, and one did it with the eyes of faith, and you see the difference between. Look, God says, as far as you can see, I'll give it to you and to your offspring, and it's going to be forever. Earlier, God had promised to make of Abram a great nation. It gets even more specific here. More than all the dust of the earth, and y'all, that's kind of crazy. Two other times later, uh, in 15 and 22, uh, his descendants will be compared to stars, right, also difficult to count, and to all the sand on the shore, incredibly difficult to count, but y'all, when you get a grain of sand, you can feel a grain of sand, right? What about dust? Can you, no, you can't. I I went down a rabbit hole on Google the other day uh, at, at microns of size here. Dust, beach, sand, these things. It's, it's interesting, but I'll spare you the details. The sovereign Lord appears to Abram, reiterates and reaffirms his promises to Abram. And what does Abram do? What comes next for Abram? What should come next for us? After we've been rescued from our failure, after we've had our faith renewed and energized, what comes next? Verse 18. More worship. He builds another altar. It's like he's obsessed. He calls upon the name of the Lord. And I'm sure he grows stronger in his faith. And he continues to seek to obey, to to be a peacemaker, to be generous, rinse and repeat. Let's pray.